Well, good morning. The world is hopeless. Uh, after decades of decline, rates of violent crime and global poverty are back on the rise. Uh, for the first time in a century, life expectancy in the United States actually dropped, it declined in 2021 and continued dropping the next year. Unprecedented for a developed country. Deaths of despair, alcoholism, suicide, drug overdose, have been on the rise for years. Over 70% of Americans feel the country's on the wrong track, and they have felt that way for years. The pessimism is unprecedented. In the words of the pollsters, quote, we have never before seen this level of sustained pessimism in the 30-year-plus history of polling. The world knows it needs hope. Politicians get elected, promising hope. Every new technology sells itself as the great hope to solve this or that problem. Go to Barnes & Noble and browse entire shelves of books about the power of positive thinking. Or just look at the internet for 10 weird tricks to increase your hope. Hope is good. Hope is necessary. As one recent article on Psychology Today put it, Research indicates that hope can help us manage stress and anxiety, cope with adversity. It contributes to our well-being and happiness and motivates positive action. Hopeful people believe they can influence their goals, that their efforts can have a positive impact. They are also more likely to make healthy choices, to eat better and exercise, and to do other things that will help them move towards what they are hoping for. And yet the world is hopeless. Where do we find hope? Now, if you're in, here in church, you're probably aware the Bible has a lot to say about hope. Hope is the confident expectation of good things to come. And the Bible is full of talk about hope. It's almost synonymous with faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. We read in Hebrews 11. God is the God of hope. The hope of Israel. The psalmists sing of their hope in God. Paul writes of the hope of glory. And we are told to hope in God's promises, his love. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. God promises to give us good things and encourages us to hope for them. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Jeremiah 29. And God himself is the object of our hopes. For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust from my youth. And yet it is hard to hold on to hope because life is hard. The picture I painted at the beginning is real. We live in a hopeless world. It can be hard to hope, to hold on to a confident expectation of good things to come when the hard things loom larger. When we see only the immediate, the near at hand, the hard things defeat hope and life begins to look hopeless. How do you hold on to hope when life is hard? 
Well, our passage this morning is in part an answer to that question in the apostle uh, in the epistle from Peter. We read in Peter, 1 Peter 1, 1 through 12. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles in the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible, filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about it, about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when the predicted sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that they have now been announced to you uh, through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. The first thing to note about this passage is the who, the who of this passage, the apostle Peter. Point number one is the who. The author introduces himself, verse one, the apostle Peter. He humbly calls himself an apostle, but really he could call himself the apostle. Peter was the apostle, the, the leader of the 12 apostles. Uh, if there's a main character in the gospels next to Jesus himself, it's Peter. And Peter knew something about trials, about hardship. This is a man whom Jesus asked to leave everything for his sake. And we know theologically, Jesus asks all of us to deny ourselves, take up our cross, follow him, to hate our family members, even our own lives, to renounce all we have to be his disciple. But most of us do that spiritually. Peter did it literally. He actually left his vocation. He left his job. He was presumably away from his wife for long stretches of time while he was following Jesus around for three years, listening to him preach. Uh, at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, Peter was physically exhausted. Remember how he fell asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane. He endured fear when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus, probably expecting they were going to arrest the disciples too. He endured uh, mockery and suspicion at Jesus' trial. He suffered the guilt and the humiliation of him denying Jesus uh, during the trial. And he was likely terrified and despairing and guilt-ridden after Jesus' death. 
Then, after the joy of seeing Jesus rise from the dead, ascend to heaven, Peter then suffered further. He suffered the ordeal of being the leader of the new church, of leading the apostles after Jesus' ascension. He was persecuted, imprisoned by the Sanhedrin for preaching about Jesus. He still didn't get the full implications of Jesus' message. He, Paul, the Apostle Paul, had to rebuke him publicly for his attitude towards the Gentiles, another humiliation. And early church tradition holds that Peter himself was executed by the Romans, crucified upside down. Indeed, this letter we're looking at this morning may have been written just before, perhaps in the early days of, the first great persecution of Christians by the Emperor Nero around 64 AD. So this letter is from someone who knows something about trials, who knows something about suffering, about hardship. And that's a good model, by the way, of biblical counseling. Often we are most able to comfort others because of the suffering of our own. Identifying with others' suffering is one of the simplest and most important ways to be a comforting presence in the midst of another person's trials. Peter didn't have to rehearse his biography. Presumably the church knew who he was. So just saying this is from Peter conveyed all of that in the first verse. But when you are with someone who is grieving or mourning or fearful or in pain, simply being with them and saying, I know it's hard, I've been there, is all you need to say. The reality of trials is the first major theme that we want to note in the passage. So this is point number two, the hardships. Point number two, the hardships. Peter writes his letter to the elect exiles across Asia Minor. That's modern-day Turkey. He's mostly writing to a Gentile audience, but he's grouping them together with the dispersion, the diaspora of Jews outside the Promised Land. It's a small way of reminding the Gentile Christians that they are also the inheritors of the story of Israel. And that's going to be important later as he, he's planting a seed here to remind them of what they hope for later. Now think for a moment. An exile. An exile is someone cut off from their true home. Um, a refugee forced by necessity to live at the mercy of citizens and rulers in another land. And that was literally true for Christians in the Roman Empire. Rome officially tolerated a variety of religious sects, but it was, it was actually pretty suspicious of Christians and Jews. Romans worshipped Jupiter, the Greeks worshipped Zeus, the Egyptians worshipped Ra. They were all pretty content to worship one and let the others worship another. Rome encouraged a fashionable belief that all roads lead up the same mountain. Should sound familiar. Christians and Jews insisted on monotheism, a weird and offensive notion that there is only one true God and that all the others, that Jupiter and Zeus and Ra, were fake and maybe even demonic. And so Christians and Jews became second-class citizens, exiles, cut off from civic life, from being treated as a full person, always under suspicion as Rome became more explicitly pagan and started to require pagan rituals to participate as a full citizen or a soldier or an imperial official. 
And that's not just true of ancient Rome, is it? Today, our beliefs that we understand from the Bible about sin, about hell, about the exclusivity of Christ, our beliefs about human sexuality, about the sanctity of life and marriage, are increasingly unpopular, offensive, and weird. They place us in some corners of our society beyond the pale of polite society. And we are increasingly unable to participate as full persons, full citizens, in parts of this world's public life. Christians then and today are exiles, cut off from our true home, never fully at home, never fully fitting in where we are, never assured that the world will treat us as full persons. By the way, that actually should be normal for all Christians in all times and places. We should never be too comfortable with the world. Sometimes, sometimes the world is more friendly. Praise God for that. Sometimes it is more hostile. But don't let the world's seeming friendliness sometimes tempt you to feel at home. The world's friendliness can, be, can, be, can become deceitful and tempting, lulling us to sleep or subtly luring us away from true Christian fidelity. Peter calling us exiles is not just a recognition of reality, it's also a reminder of the way to think of ourselves at all times, in all places, never to make this world our home. At times, the world grows more overtly hostile. Christians and Jews in the ancient world were not merely second-class citizens. They were sometimes suspected of treason, refusing to worship the state's gods is sedition. When fire broke out in Rome in 64 AD, the emperor famously blamed it on Christians. He arrested and crucified Christians. He fed them to lions. He inspired a pogrom of popular violence against the followers of Jesus. Peter himself and probably Paul were likely killed during this first great persecution. Christians in America don't face that kind of persecution, thank God. The most we have to fear is social ostracism and ridicule. But please recognize that our brothers and sisters in Christ across the world, they do face that. Even today, right now, Christians in China, Christians in Saudi Arabia, Christians in Iran, sadly Christians in Afghanistan, uh, elsewhere daily face the possibility, daily face the possibility of legal harassment, of popular violence, of arrest, of torture, even execution. And their lives should daily be in our prayers. Now, it's important, I think, to realize the depth of the world's hostility, to understand Peter's point about hardships. When the world ostracizes us, even when the world is ready to murder us, Peter says, rejoice. In verse 6, in this you rejoice. So now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So imagine you've lost your job. Imagine you've learned from the doctor that you have a terminal illness. Imagine, worse yet, you're in hiding because someone's trying to kill you. And Peter comes around to give you advice. And his advice is, congratulations, I, 
I'm so happy for you. You must be so excited to have lost your job, to have cancer, to, to be on the run for your life. You might think Peter is crazy. If this world is your home, Peter is crazy. If we have no hope of something more than this life, our sufferings have no meaning, and they are nothing but agony before death. There is nothing to be happy about. As the science fiction writer David Gerald famously said, life is hard, then you die. I think that perfectly encapsulates the world's attitude towards life and hardship. Peter thinks our trials should occasion our joy because of what they do to us and for us and how we should respond and how God uses them to make us a different kind of person. Look at the metaphor he uses. He talks about refining gold. And this was fun. I got to research metallurgy in preparing the sermon. According to the internet, in ancient times, this form of refining involved a craftsman sitting next to a hot fire with molten gold in a crucible, being stirred and skimmed to remove the impurities or dross that rose to the top of the molten metal. With flames reaching temperatures in excess of 1,000 degrees Celsius, almost 2,000 Fahrenheit, the job was definitely a dangerous occupation. Imagine that, almost 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. It's hot outside. It's not that hot. Refining gold turns it into the most precious, the most valuable thing on earth. In the, in the ancient world, gold was money, literally money. You just carried it around and paid for stuff with it. Gold was jewelry. Deck yourself out with gold to show off your status, your, your, your wealth, your power. Gold was decoration. It is beautiful. Gold is a beautiful metal. Finely refined and, and polished up, it gleams and shines. And so pure gold also could never be destroyed. Same article, pure gold is virtually indestructible. It will not corrode or rust or tarnish, and fire cannot destroy it. Gold is wealth and beauty and power rolled into one. Pure gold that had passed through the fire the most beautiful, valuable, and permanent thing in existence. Kings literally draped themselves in gold. And Peter says, your faith in Jesus is better still. Trials are the crucible. Trials are the fire through which our faith is tested, purified, and shown trustworthy. Again, pure gold, almost indestructible. But this whole world is perishing. I think that's what Peter's getting at when he says gold that perishes though it is tested by fire. Not saying that gold perishes by fire because it doesn't. He's saying that the most valuable, most beautiful, most indestructible thing in all the world is actually quite destructible because it's part of this world. And it will pass away compared to the enduring beauty and power of the trust we put in Jesus Christ. As the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans 5, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. 
Or as Jesus reminds us, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy them, where thieves break in and steal. Lay up treasures in heaven. Look, gold is amazing. I'm wearing a gold ring right now. Many of you are as well. But would I rather have this gold ring or the precious, lifelong, trusting commitment it symbolizes? That relationship is far more precious than this chunk of metal. A relationship that, that sweetens the longer it lasts as my wife and I grow together through hardships over the years. Similarly, our trust in Jesus, our relationship with Jesus grows deeper and sweeter through adversity. And that is a different and better kind of treasure than what the world offers. And that brings us to the hope. The hope that Peter talks about. Point number three, the hope. Despite his trials, Peter knew hope. And he wrote to remind his readers that they shared the same hope. What did Peter hope for? Look at the various ways he describes it in this brief passage. We are born again. Verse 3, we have a living hope. We have an inheritance, imperishable, undefiled, unfading. In verse 4, we are guarded by God's power. In verse 5. In verse 9, he kind of summarizes the whole thing. We, we achieve the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That's what he's hoping for. But what does that mean, actually? There are, I think, I want to say four separate ways of thinking about the salvation of our souls. But first, I want to clear up one misconception. So I have five subpoints here. Clear up a misconception and four aspects of salvation. This phrase... The salvation of your soul might be very familiar if uh, you are a regular churchgoer, lifelong Christian, maybe even non-Christians if you're here uh, and you've happened to listen to Christians talk, you maybe have heard this phrase tossed about, salvation of your soul. It's a convenient summary, a shorthand, and it's biblical. But that also means it becomes a bit of jargon that we throw around uh, without reflecting on what it might mean. And that can be a challenge because of the legacy of ancient Greek philosophy on early Christian theology. The ancient Greeks thought of the soul as a kind of inner ghost, uh, an immortal, invisible, spiritual essence of personhood that simply inhabits the physical animal body. And Christians sometimes, as a result, got in the bad habit of talking about the salvation of our souls as the escape of our ghostly soul away from the body into an ethereal, incorporeal heaven. Jesus came to give our souls an escape hatch, uh, get away from the body and this, and this physical world forever, so we could live on forever in some distant spiritual heaven. Right. That's Platonism, not Christianity. It's not in the Bible, and that's not what Peter's talking about. So I want to recognize it and get it out of our heads. That's not what the salvation of our souls means. What does it mean? I think there's four different ways we see it in this passage. Number one, the salvation of our souls is reconciliation with God and the forgiveness of our sins. We are sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ, Peter says in verse 2. This is an image from Israel's system of temple sacrifice. Priests would sacrifice an animal as a symbolic 
death for sin, and then sprinkle the blood around the altar. In Exodus 24, Moses actually sprinkles the blood on the people of Israel. They put the blood in the vats and they hurl it on the congregation to get the congregation identified with the death of the sacrificial animal. Funny story. A couple months ago, in my last public speaking event, was days after I had sinus surgery. I was giving the benediction for one of my kids' school events. As I bowed my head, something came loose, and I began to gush blood. I just gushed blood all over the podium, the Bible, everything. So I came very near sprinkling the congregation with my blood. Now, sadly, my blood does not have any power to forgive sins. But it's kind of gross, right? I think the temple sacrifice system should strike you as a little gross. Being sprinkled physically with blood, and the image here, being sprinkled with Jesus' blood, is a, is, might strike you as weird and a little gross. But it is a way of viscerally experiencing the temple sacrifice and identifying with the death of the animal being sacrificed or, or with Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. The blood of the covenant is a sign of the forgiveness of sins and rapprochement with God. The salvation of your soul is peace with God. Peace with God. Why is the world hopeless? Because it knows it doesn't have this. You walk around your whole life with that vague, unspecified, inarticulate sense that something's wrong with you and with the world, and it's just not right. Christians, we don't have that. We have peace with God. We have freedom from guilt. We have forgiveness of sins because of Jesus' death on the cross and our being found in him. Second, the salvation of our soul is also being born again. Being born again. Peter uses this phrase, being born again, to reference back to John chapter 3, where Jesus tells Nicodemus that we must be born again, born of the Spirit of God, to enter the kingdom of heaven. Another bit of Christian jargon, right? We're born again Christians. Uh, here it is in the Bible, so it is biblically accurate to say that we are born again. What does it mean? We, we understand that when we trust Jesus... The Holy Spirit regenerates our hearts, births a new spirit within us. As God said through the prophet Ezekiel, I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Be careful to obey my rules. When you trust Jesus, you are born again. You, you actually become a different kind of person. God changes your spiritual DNA. You are a new creation. You're alive with a new kind of life. One that begins now. We, we don't have to wait for the future resurrection. In, in a real sense, we are newly alive now. The Holy Spirit makes us alive in a new way. We have a different and better quality of life. We live out of that newness of life in our love for one another, in our pursuit of holiness before God. That is the mark of a true Christian. We should be known for being different kind of people. We should be weird in the world. This is part of being in exile. Christians should be known by their fruit. 
And it should, be, it should come from this newness of life flowing out of our hearts, new hearts. That is also what it means to have the salvation of our souls. Third, the salvation of your soul also means sanctification or obedience. Again, verse 2, it talks about obedience to Jesus Christ. Sanctification is purification, it's cleansing. We are made clean. We are set apart. We are made holy for God's purposes. We are saved for obedience to Jesus Christ. It might sound kind of weird that this is part of being, sa- part of being saved is being saved so that you can obey Jesus. But, but think about what that means. He is our Lord and our King. We, we have guide. We have a direction. We have a king who provides a life full of meaning and purpose. In Ephesians 2, the Apostle Paul writes that we are created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God saved us for a purpose. Not just so that we could go on living forever in idleness. We get to do his work. We are saved from a meaningless life. We are given the privilege of purpose, of meaningful work. We get to carry on the purposeful task of, first, the creation mandate of tending and keeping the garden, and second, the great commission of making disciples of all nations. We get to do that. That should fill you with joy that we have a purposeful life. Fourth and finally, the salvation of our souls that Peter talks about here is salvation from death. Christians will not stay dead because Jesus didn't. Like Jesus, we will get up out of the grave and go on living forever. The hope we have is the hope of resurrection. To be very clear, this is not a metaphor. I mean this as literally and physically as as possibly I can convey. Our bodies are not just random, unimportant animal houses for our spiritual selves. Our bodies are an essential part of who we are, so take care of it. Remember that God made the physical world and called it very good. And your body is included in that. Jesus was an incarnated human being with a body. He hungered, he slept, he ate, he drank, he bled, he died, he rose. Peter reminds us our hope comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And this is not a nice metaphor for the endurance of his example or the inspiring message of his life. Peter ran to Jesus' tomb and saw that it was empty and then saw the resurrected Jesus Christ in power. Whatever you're afraid of, if you push hard enough, death often lurks behind it all. Every other mistake or regret or fear can be fixed, corrected, overcome with enough time. There's a finality to death that we can't go back from. An end point, not just to our hopes and dreams and ambitions, but to you. Jesus did come back from it. And his good news is, so can you. These hopes... Reconciliation, regeneration, sanctification, resurrection, they are all aspects of each other. We hope for a new, everlasting, 
purposeful life with God. Did you note the Trinity in verse 2? According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, the sanctification of the Spirit, the obedience to Jesus Christ, the fullness of God is involved in assuring our hope. What if we don't feel hopeful? Final question. Last point. What if we don't feel hopeful? What if we don't feel joy? What if the trials we face loom too large? Illness, age, loneliness, poverty, frustrated ambitions, or the trial of an alienated family member, bad relationships, past regrets, persistent fear, anxiety, in my case, depression, crippling sense that nothing matters, nothing will ever get better. Life is hopeless, especially if you have experienced past trauma that can loom very large. It can, it can leave scars. And it can be very hard to hold on to the reality of the hope that we have. And that's why, perhaps, first of all, that's why preaching this sermon, I feel like the world's biggest hypocrite, because this is a sermon I need above all. But second, that may be why some of us stumble over verse 8. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Perhaps it does not describe you. It doesn't usually describe me. Indeed, in the book of Proverbs, King Solomon writes, hope deferred makes the heart sick. So it's in the Bible, right? When we don't have what we hope for, we grow sick with yearning. A desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Is your heart sick waiting for our hope? Let me offer a few thoughts. First, I think Peter may be, in part, relying on a rhetorical technique of using the present tense to make a future reality more vivid. When we imagine something that we long for, like a wedding, graduation, or a new season, we sometimes begin to speak as if it is happening now. Personally, I can't wait for fall. The leaves are falling. The air is chill and crisp. I can smell the pumpkin spice. Okay, I can't actually, but I'm speaking in the present tense because I'm imagining it and making it real to myself right now. I think maybe that's partly what's going on. Peter is making more vivid the future expected reality of our joy. Second, let's remember, Peter has just finished talking about trials. He's not unaware of how they feel. Being a Christian doesn't mean exercising mass delusion. It doesn't mean cultivating spiritual masochism or pretending that bad things are actually fun. Trials are terrible. Otherwise, we wouldn't call them trials. We wouldn't need counsel and guidance for how to survive them. Of course they're bad, and we don't need to pretend otherwise. Jesus wept at Lazarus' death. He, he, he sweat blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. He didn't sing a song of praise. It's okay to feel sad. It, it, don't feel guilty if you don't feel the joy described in verse 8. 
That's not a burden any Christian needs to bear. Rather, I think the Bible presents a different relationship between hope and suffering and joy. God desires that we pour out our sorrows before him, not pretend they don't exist. Lamentations 3. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Pour out your griefs to God. Be honest about them. When you do not feel joy, when you are burdened with sorrow, don't fake it till you make it. Do lay it before God in prayer. Trust that hope and suffering go together and precede your joy. The more we persevere in suffering, the more our present hope and future joy grows. Peter says that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result result in praise and glory and honor, revelation of Jesus Christ. I think that suggests a connection between today's faith and tomorrow's joyous praise and glory and honor. In suffering, we sow faith and hope. In resurrection, we reap joy and praise and glory and honor. And isn't it true that the things we look forward to are sweeter when we have to wait and sacrifice for them? The glass of chilled water is better after a day's hot labor in the sun. The the diploma is better after years of hard study. The bonus after an especially grueling year at work. The marriage is sweeter after decades of life and love and work together. The child-rearing after seeing them grow and overcome their own hardships. When the world sees trials, it sees only meaningless suffering. When Christians see trials, it ain't fun, but we do see rich soil for planting the seeds of hope that will yield a harvest of joy. As Job says in one of the hardest truths of Scripture, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Peter reminds us, we are elect, verse 2, that God foreknew us. God won this battle before it started. He has been fighting for us since before we existed. If you are having a hard time holding on to this hope, remember all the ways that God has been faithful to you. Keep a record, keep a scrapbook, keep a journal, anything to help you remember and call to mind the small ways in this life that God has already provided for your welfare, your future, your hope. When we remember the small ways that God has provided for us in this life, it renews our hope for our ultimate salvation when Jesus returns. And, and isn't that at the root of it all? That we're living in between Jesus' ascension and Jesus' return? If Jesus were here, there'd be no trial, right? 
His return will end all trials, and all trials will pale in insignificance compared to what his return will mean. And I think that's what Peter's acknowledging in verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. In a very real sense, this is the biggest trial. Peter describes in verses 10 through 12 how the prophets of the past, the angels in heaven, yearned to understand and see what God was doing when his salvation would be accomplished. We Christians believe in an invisible God who became a man, was executed, got up from the dead, rose to heaven. As I say those propositional truths, it may not feel hard to believe them. Perhaps for some of you, it does feel hard it is much harder to stake your life on them, to live as if they are true. As Paul says, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Hold on to this hope with patience and with joy. Now we see, but in a mirror dimly. But soon... Please, God, we will see the face of God. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, you assured us in your word, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Lord, what a hope, what a vision. Thank you for promising and assuring us that we will see your face. Pray that you would fill us with hope and with joy and carry this with us. We pray in your name. Amen.